0: I'm sure many of you have heard the news, but they finally killed Alexei Navalny. The relatively quick, agonizing death by poison failed, so the slow, drawn-out horror of Russian prison did the job instead. No one was ever under the illusion that it wouldn't come to this, and perhaps its inevitability is what makes it so hard to muster any outrage. That and the fact that we are surrounded by so many horrors. We are living in dark times, indeed.
1: Make no mistake. Navalny was a victim of Putin's terror, perhaps THE victim. Over the info, the Russian human rights group reports that since February 2022, almost 20,000 people have been arrested for anti-war activity. Over 800 have been convicted. And though anti-war activism was never the center of Navalny's politics, he nonetheless stood for them all.
0: The Eurasian Knot has a handful of episodes related to Navalny. They stand as our record of who he was, his talents as a politician, his tenacity, his mistakes, and the complexities and controversies of his movement. Navalny's politics were never our politics, but we admired him. It's hard not to.
1: It's difficult to imagine that Putin allowed him to run for mayor of Moscow a decade ago, and that he got 27% of the vote. It was a different Russia and a different world.
0: Finally, we open with Navalny not just because of his murder. He's also mentioned in the interview you're about to hear about Russian prison knocking language. It would be strange not to note the irony that we're releasing an episode about the Russian revolutionary tradition on the day of Navalny's death. It's fitting and tragic that he now belongs among that crowded pantheon. Like them, Alexei Navalny dedicated his life to a better Russia and only to get crushed for it. Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory.
1: And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova.
0: As you listeners know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who give monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going, to allow us to pay for good mixing and mastering of the audio so it can sound as best as we can. So if you like this show, you listen to it and you appreciate it, please show us how much you value it by becoming a patron. Show us that you're willing to invest in this show. And to do that, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash you're a knot and become a patron. So how are you, Rusana?
1: Uh I'm pretty good. Yeah, it's fi- it's finally sunny in the bay. So <laughs> Did it rain?
0: Did you get all those rains?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's been raining for an entire month pretty wow. much. Uh, lots of lots of lots of rain and so finally we have a sunny day and I feel like, well, is it the end of it? Is the spring <laughs> finally coming?
0: Well, let's hope so. I'll be
1: able to take my family outside.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Especially you have that California weather, so, yeah. you know, you yes. don't have what I have. Yes. So,
1: and I'm still complaining. <laughs> I'm still complaining well, about the winter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it'll be over soon for all of us because I'm sick of it. So listeners should know that we, Rusana, and I have this idea, and it's based off of the fact that I'm teaching this, this Sound of History class at the University of Pittsburgh And um, we have this idea to have listeners send in the sounds that remind you of the region we cover. You don't have to record them, though, if you are there in Eastern Europe or former Soviet Union. Central Asia. Central Asia. Yeah, you can take out your phone and record a sound that you find interesting. And you can send it to us and uh, tell us a little bit about it and where it's from. And I'll give you the information on how to do that in a few minutes. But first, we want to listen to a sound that I picked just to get the ball rolling. This is a muezzin. This is a muezzin's call for prayer in Almaty, Kazakhstan. It's from the Gorny Gigant Mosque. It was recorded at 4.30 in the morning on April 23rd, 2018. And this comes from a website called freesound.org where field recorders from all over the world upload clips of things that they record and this was submitted by a user from free sound named fth Gertie <laughs> very cryptic yeah so Fth Gertie provided this sound <laughs> So, Risa, what comes to mind when you hear this, Muezzin's call for prayer from Almaty?
1: You know, I was instantly transported to Cairo, where I spent about 10 days this October, because you can hear those prayers day and night in every corner of the city. So, to me, the sound is indicative more of like a Muslim world than a post-Soviet space.
0: right. Yeah. And that's actually what I like about it. There's two things. First off, I think it's beautiful. It just sounds beautiful. And in this particular recording, I really like the birds tweeting in between. You can hear them. But first off, A, it reminds me of the fact that at least when Kazakhstan was part of the Soviet Union there is a large Muslim presence that's, of course, now there, is still there in Kazakhstan, obviously. But the other thing is exactly what you said, is that there's a kind of part of a Muslim world, right? You can hear this in Cairo. You can hear this in... I have a student who is an immigrant from a family from Chad, and uh, she said that this sounds similar to what she heard back in Chad. So it's, like, specific, but also has this universal quality that I like.
1: Mm, Yeah, and just... On a related note, it fascinates me how certain sound can make people feel, make people feel connected or Mm -hmm. disconnected, even if you're not part of a specific location or not part of a specific culture.
0: Right, right. It's pretty cool. And in line with that, you know, we'd like you, like I said before, to send sounds that you like or record yourself from the region and you can send them to us and we'll play them on the podcast so you go to uranot.org contact to the contact form, and you can submit your sounds there, make them around no more than 30 seconds. And if you can record or write where the sound is from and tell us what it means to you and we'll um, play it on the podcast and get a sense of, you know, I have lots of sounds that remind me of being back in Moscow. So I'm sure many of us, particularly those who go to Russia, who can't go there anymore, maybe there are some sounds that kind of are nostalgic.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious to see what submissions we get.
0: Yeah, yes. Hopefully we'll get a lot and we'll see what (laughs) we can do with them.
1: (laughs) Hopefully we'll have, uh, yeah, something to pick from.
0: Yeah, this is our attempt to get some listener participation. So anyways, let's move on to the interview from this week. This week's interview is with Nicholas Bujalski about his article, Tuk-tuk-tuk, A History of Russia's Prison Knocking Language, which won Best Article in the Russian Review in 2023. And of course, this is a good interview to introduce our sound project because it's very much about sound, right? The knocking language.
1: I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, but for me, the highlight of the interview was when Nicholas was talking about the grammar of this prison knocking and how this grammar was developed it wasn't as straightforward as you might think it was uh, an elaborate and quite complex syntax that was developed and then later also transmitted from person to person and it was just like to me it was really incredible how people who are locked up behind these really thick walls of the peter and paul fortress were able to not only use this language, but also somehow learn it from people who were in adjacent cells or whatever. So part of Russian culture that you would never, ever heard about unless you talk to someone like Nicholas.
0: Yeah, definitely. And the one thing that I really liked going back to the sound issue, I never actually considered it before how prisons try to regulate sound, how they not only enforce isolation of people, and not only enforce censorship of the written word, but how they also try to create or regulate sound and try to create a regime of silence. And the knocking language tries to get around that through knocking, which I found really, really fascinating too. So I hope listeners enjoy this. It's a really great subject to talk about. So how about you introduce Nicholas? Sure.
1: Nicholas Budzalski is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of History at Oberlin College. His writing has appeared in the Russian Review, Modern Intellectual History, and the Marx and Philosophy Review of Books. And his current book project is a cultural, intellectual, and spatial history of Russia's revolutionary movement through the prison cells of the Peter and Paul Fortress. Here's Nicholas (laughs) Budzalski.
0: So, Nick, it's really nice to talk to you and congratulations for this essay of yours that won the best article of the year in the Russian Review in 2023. And the article is Tuk-tuk-tuk, A History of Russian's Prison Knocking Language. And of course, the first question is, how did you get into this? What was the draw to, to write something about this knocking language?
2: Yeah, of course. And thank you so much, Sean and Rusana, for having me on today. It's a pleasure to chat with you. For me, the very first moment I got acquainted with this sort of history of this prison-knocking language, or peristukovanie, in the carceral sites of Tsarist Russia and beyond, actually came from literature, interestingly enough. In my experience, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, that most Americans who make their way into the scholarly study of Russia, Eastern Europe, and Eurasia, either approach it through the realm of literature or the realm of politics, right? And maybe, you know, go other places later on. But that first kind of initial hook is one of those two paths. For me, it was literature. I don't know about you. Mine is the latter, politics. Mm, Oh, politics. Interesting. For me, when I was, you know, way back in high school, I remember reading Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, right? And that's probably the most famous depiction of Peristukovany in knocking language in world literature, this tale of a sort of Bukharin, you know, old Bolshevik stand-in imprisoned by the Stalinist regime and using this sort of coded taps on cell walls to communicate with his comrades. And now I have to be clear here, I really dislike Kessler as a whole. I think he's a nasty individual and the book has its a, a very particular politics, more a symptom of Cold War anti-communism than anything really productive for me today. But that stuck with me. And when I moved on, literature was also the entry point for my larger project on the history of Russia's Peter and Paul fortress, the most notorious prison of this artist regime. And as I started getting into that knocking language, those little taps and echoes and knocks came back up again for me in that process, too.
1: So, Nick, I'm curious, how does this article fit into your broader intellectual project as a historian of modern Russia?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Rusan. I mean, so my larger project is a history of Russia's Peter and Paul fortress, right? This massive citadel that sits on a small island in the Nieva River in St. Petersburg. And it's this really fascinating, overdetermined space, right? Where it's the founding site of the imperial capital. The cathedral in this citadel holds the tombs of the Romanov House, right? It's a site of Tsarist sacred ritual, political right. But also in this same island citadel were held the cells of the most notorious prisons of the Tsarist regime, right? So Tsarist holy site as well as carceral space. And so I found this project first and foremost, again, through literature, right, where you follow the life of an author, you follow a radical sort of career, and so often these pathways, these itineraries in Russia's long 19th century end up in a cell of the Tsarist regime. The most notorious radicals from Bakunin, Chernyshevsky, Nechayev, Kropotkin, Figner, Dostoevsky spent time there. Russian history wends its way through this island space. And when I first started my doctoral work, I was totally surprised to find that there's no kind of modern history of this site in any language. No modern scholarly approach to the Peter and Paul Fortress. And so I started to dive in, and so my larger project is a sort of broad empirical history. I spent several years in the archives digging up the ways in which this fortress was founded, how it was used as a prison, as a tomb, what happened to in the revolution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a history of ideas, a history of culture, a history of spaces in the modern Russian revolutionary past where I try to understand how was this site founded as a sacred imperial space, slowly contested and transformed by the radicals held within into a sacred space of the revolutionary tradition instead, right? Because unlike this Russian Bastille, unlike its French variant, wasn't torn down after 1917. Instead, it was preserved and enshrined as a sacred space of the Russian revolutionary struggle, transformed into a museum of the revolution. And so my project traces
0: that arc as well and tries to understand exactly how that transformation happened. So it touches on a lot of issues and one of the ones that I'm surprised you didn't mention, because this article deals with it explicitly, and that is sound. And this is also a recent interest of mine in terms of sound studies and sound and history. And one of the things that really struck me is how the prison is a place of silence or enforced silence or it regulates sound. And sound is a form of... I don't I want to go so far as to say resistance, but maybe sure. It's a form of survival to be able to communicate through this, right? The very beginning of your article is tuk, 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 this sound of knocking, right? It's a sound. Can you go into a bit more about the role of sound and silence? Because it is mentioned in a couple of places in your article. Yeah, absolutely. So the Peter Paul
2: Fortress and the prison cells held within, which were mostly repurposed casemates until special prison sites were actually fitted into the fortress later on in the 19th century, were all based around the principle of solitary confinement, right? These were the most notorious, terrifying rebels against the autocratic regime. And as such, the guard regulations from the 18th century onwards through the 19th century are obsessed with trying to limit prisoner communication, especially sounds, right? And yeah, I mean, the modern carceral space in general from its early political origins, moving into sort of prison reform and the new architectures of the cell, right? I mean, Bentham Bentham lived in Russia, right? It's not directly connected with Peter Paul Fortress, but I've always found that to be an interesting tidbit. It's very much a purposeful architecture of channeling power through vision and through sight, as well as regulating um cloistering, muffling possibilities for unregulated sounds between inmates. And I find this, when I talk about my article a little bit, I I spend a ton of time in the Fortress Command and archives where uh, I dig into these guard regulations, try to understand how the state is seeing the threat of unregulated sound, right, from these radicals. But also in terms of the intellectual history of my project, I would argue that the 19th century became obsessed with the politics of sound in some ways, right? Where even in Russian revolutionary history, you go back to some of the earliest sort of, quote-unquote, progenitors of the radical Russian intelligentsia, a figure like Radishov, who's still very much plugged into 18th century politics of knowledge, virtue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A vision is the key kind of sensory modality for his politics. His journey from Petersburg to Moscow in its episodic form is presenting before the gaze of an educated progressive readership, a vision of the suffering of the Russian people, of the horrors of serfdom, the irrationality and brutality of contemporary Russian life, and channeled through the eyes and and lens of this sort of self-insert narrator uh, who's constantly crying, weeping, looking upward, looking downwards, a politics of vision. Well, the 19th century, I see personally it connected to the rise of Romanticism and its peeling away some of the implications of enlightenment kind of logic and vision and clarity for a more emotive, a more kind of textured understanding of political, organic political community bound together into a new type of demos, a new type of nation, new type of class-based structure. But also I connected with the French Revolution and this will or desire to represent the people. But the people or the demos is incredibly difficult to encompass with one's gaze, right? It's much easier to hear the demos, to try to give it voice, to try to understand how it is expressing itself acoustically. And so I mean, this is something small I developed um, in an very early version of this article that I presented back in Switzerland University of Bern in 2019. I got some great feedback on it from other scholars looking at the politics and agencies of sound. But it's clear to me that in Russian revolutionary narrated life, being silenced in a cell of the Peter and Paul Fortress isn't just horrifying for... The existential suffering that entails, right, the lived experience of the cell, but also how there's a very figurative or conceptual silencing of the political voice that had intended to reach out to this larger new political community capable of challenging the autocracy.
1: I wanted to intervene in this conversation about sound and perhaps add that it's not just Prison knocking is not just sound, it's a real language with its own grammar and meanings and music. I'm curious to know how this language emerged, how did it develop, and what is this language's grammar? Maybe you could give us like some examples
2: yeah absolutely I'm not sure how well an example would travel over the meaning of the podcast maybe I could try but uh but you're totally right saw the a knocking language it's not the same as simply yelling across cell walls, right, which is heavily regulated, which is constantly prevented in these guard regulations. And so instead, radical prisoners held in the Peter and Paul fortress across the course of the 19th century developed this knocking language, which is a coded system of taps and knocks. And there's many different variants of it that you can find in the memoir literature and in archives. The most common one sets the Russian alphabet in a grid, right, usually five, six rows, five, six columns. And to signal a letter of the alphabet to your neighbor in in an adjoining cell, you knock out two numbers, right? The first being the, the row and the second being the column number of that letter's position in the grid, right? And I mean, it sounds pretty clunky at first, maybe as I've tried to do it at times. It does take a while, but you do find in memoirs, people stuck in solitary confinement for months, years, for decades even, mastering this to the point where they can have fully organic flowing conversations. You hear accounts of the knocking coming out as fast as like a grasshopper chirping, right? Which I find to be extraordinary. And you ask, so this was invented in the Peter and Paul fortress in the year 1826. The first evidence we have of it is from the two Biestuza brothers, who were kind of swept up in the Decembrist revolt of 18. 25. And so I did. Part of my article in general was just trying to give the first kind of forensic history of where this came from, how it developed, how it was used. I found with the Biestuzyv brothers that they were both placed in adjoining cells in the fortress as they were, you know, faced interrogation and trial by Nicholas I after the failed revolt. And they attempted to somehow communicate knock to each other in a way that would escape the guards' notice, but couldn't quite settle on anything until they both got a letter from their mother that was identically phrased. And they were able to use that as a sort of Rosetta Stone. So it's the same words, right? And so they experimented with a way to kind of, okay, this letter is this, this letter is that, and eventually developed a knocking code. And it was incredibly ungainly and unwieldy. they had both uh, been part of the Navy, and so it was based on naval bells. Each letter was like, you know, a bunch of different sounds, but it's from these humble origins and after actually quite a long hiatus, these Decemberist origins would spark it again in the cells of the P. and Paul Fortress and the Tsarist regime in the 1870s is when it comes back. How thick are the walls? They're fairly thick. Yeah, God. Oh, it's been a while since I've been there, honestly. because As you know now, it's still a museum, right? But you have granite, you have plaster. You have. You, sometimes you hear accounts of the SARS regime trying to affix felt to the cell walls to block out the, the knocking. Once the SARS regime kind of understands what's going on, I haven't been able to confirm that in the archives, but you hear that always in the in the memoirs. But yeah, but it's granite stone that seemed to be rather conducive to the point where you hear of people being able to tap to one another, not only from one side. Cell to the next one horizontally, but also vertically between the floor and ceiling. And so this is one of these possibilities that makes knocking language such a powerful tool of subversion in the cells of the SARS regime, where if enough people imprisoned in be it the people fortress, be it other prisons, which had spread through throughout the empire. If you had enough people there who knew this language, you could communicate across entire corridors, right? Or entire cell blocks and turn the entire prison itself into a communicating kind of organism, which I find fascinating. And what kind of things did they talk about? You see all sorts of stuff pop up in the archives, right, or and in the memoir literature. At a very basic level, and I think a very understandable level, finding a technology for communicating with fellow imprisoned radicals in this, you know, notorious SARS fortress prison was just a sort of a means of existential uplift in some ways, you no? Know? Being able to start off each morning and asking how are you doing? How are things going? How are you feeling today? To open up a line of interpersonal kind of communication solidarity constantly comes up in the memoir literature as a key sort of use of this, to the extent where you find accounts of fellow radicals talking their comrades back to the brink of suicide, even things to this extent, right? But of course, there's also much more mundane and cheerful uses. I've found accounts and rare memoirs and other places of inmates learning to develop a system to play chess and checkers with one another. So using sort of molded, molded bits of bread into chess pieces and be able to knock out the positions and moves to one another and play games of chess, which is wonderful. I always love Krapotkin discussing how would he you know, he was in the Pierre and Paul Fortress in 1874 onwards, then moved to the newer House of Preliminary Detention, also in St. Petersburg. And there he knocked out the entire history of the Paris Commune to a young neighbor, right? I'm just imagining him giving these lectures, narrating this history. And then also, of course, it was useful for developing tactics and strategies to face the sars disciplinary apparatus or judicial structures, right? If you and your comrades are all swept up and thrown into solitary cells, and you're about to face be it officials from the third section, be it Senate committee, which will interrogate you and try to you know, send you off to Siberia, et cetera, for your role in the struggle for revolution. You can all get your story straight, right? You can exchange strategies on how to face the SARS interrogation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you see that pop up a lot. And the last thing which I find fascinating just in general my study of this prison fortress which is this site of mute suffering it's the site the very core heart of the russian empire it's a place where radicals were immured could no longer continue their struggle were kind of blocked out from the circulation of ideas tax um, militants that characterized age in this period. But if you got enough people brought from different corners of the empire, different localized struggles, and all condensed into prison blocks in a central prison in St. Petersburg, Odessa, where have you, you could make contact with other local cells. You could actually continue building up revolutionary cadres from within your prison cell once you've gained the ability to allow the walls to speak.
1: How did it actually work in practice if... The guards could hear knocking as well. And if the guards knew what the language was, if they knew about the grid and like.
2: Hey,
0: that was my question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your heavy guard regulation, circulation of guards. And the impression I've gotten is that you could knock very quietly, right? You're at one corner of your cell, you're at the other. It's not as audible out in the corridors of the cells of the Trubyatskoy Bastion of the Fortress or the Alexeyevsky Ravelin, unlike, say, singing, knocking, speaking. Although um, there are two other things to that. Even though this language was invented in 1826, It disappears for a while, comes back in 1870 for a variety of reasons. And then the Tsarist regime kind of scrambles around for a bit, trying to understand exactly what's happening, and they don't really pick up on things until 1880 or so. And the 1870s, of course, are one of the most interesting crucibles of Russian revolutionary history, the rise of militant populism, the going to the people movement, and the trial of the 193, et cetera. And this entire new wave of populist radicals had this new technique, and without the Regime really understanding what was going on. And, and also I mean the guards would the guards would often, not often, but there's many occasions of the guards sympathizing with radicals, right or turning a blind eye to things like this, even to the point of helping prisoners circulate written codes for knocking language to other prisoners who weren't familiar yet with the language.
0: Was Russian the lingua franca, or was this knocking language also in other languages of the empire?
2: That's a really interesting question. From what I've seen and what I picked up on, I've seen it, I, I believe, almost entirely in Russian, right? And we can talk about this later if you'd like, absolutely. This language does lead a life beyond the borders of the Russian Empire and beyond the border of 1917 in Eurasia, right? And so... Well, famously, I uncovered through a series of sources, Italian as well as Serbian historians, how the Black Hand, right, Gavrilo Princip, the, the assassins of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, right after killing the Archduke as Europe slouched towards war in their Sarajevo military prison, uh, used this knocking language that they had learned from accounts of the Russian revolutionary struggle and oh, one imagines in Serbian, right, to get their story straight and to prepare themselves for their trial. And so, and there's a lot of weird moments like this, like these strange afterlives of... Russian revolutionary, carceral history in general, beyond its borders.
0: What did this mean for revolutionary culture and identity? From all of the, of course, reading, I know the prison experience itself is a formative experience, right? It's what kind of creates the revolutionary. How does the knocking language fit into that experience and identity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you're totally right there's a will in my project to understand how The experience of radical incarceration was central to the development of revolutionary identity in the long 19th century across Eurasia, how the revolutionaries shaped the prison cell through their discourses, through their practices, through their narratives, just as the prison cell shaped them. And this is one of the key interventions in the sort of intellectual history I conduct in my doctoral work, now book manuscript, where I try to understand the ways in which The cell first became a site not of mute suffering, but one that attained political legibility in the struggle for a fight beyond all autocracies and beyond all prisons, right? And so in this conversation with recent literatures on carceral studies in general, and in which there has been a turn after the sort of earlier heyday of a Foucauldian lens that saw modernity's carceral sites as primarily arenas for the flows of juridico-epistemological power upon disciplined bodies, right? And beyond Foucault, there's recently been a new literature that's attempted to give more balanced or full accounts of human agencies, even in dire sites such as those of political imprisonment, right? The ways in which politics of the cell could be invested, could be developed, could be utilized. The ways in which political struggle doesn't stop at the borders of the the prison, but instead the prison could become a stage for the continuation of political struggle,
1: a breeding bed <laughs> for <laughs> political struggle. Sorry.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. No. Um. Yeah. And so I'm I'm working with this new term, but I'm also wary of it in some ways, right? Because there is further recent literature that has begun to challenge the overuse of agency in our studies of the past. I mean, I think you'll probably all recognize we use agency a lot these days, right? It's become almost generic or flat. To be like, Oh, I want to give agency to this. I want to give voice to this. I want to give you, I hear you, I see you. I'm giving you agency. To the point where it can become an almost debased concept, right? Without any real analytical purchase. Is it enough for us to just catalog and get a flat catalog of different moments of subversion in a radical past and say, look here, that's agency? Or to get a fuller picture of how radical cultures could begin to transform a site like this into a stage for the performances of selfhood and the furtherance of their struggle, do we need to develop a sense of the sort of cultural, intellectual, epistemological narrative framings in which self-struggle and agential action itself was being embedded and understood in this period, right? Agency, therefore, not as just like a flat category or a a binary on-off switch, but something that's part of the sort of like thick hermeneutics that we have to bring to any sort of moment of radical political change. And so this is all a really long-winded way to say that my project becomes really interested in... How did the Peter and Paul Fortress, the SARS prison in general, first get invested with a political legibility? Because famously those Decemberists who I talked about before, who first began to knock to one another and began to haltingly develop a kind of personalized language, the Decemberists, these first sort of mass political prisoners in modern Russian history, totally lacked the ability to understand or comprehend or politicize their incarceration in 1825, 1826. Yuri Lotman famously writes that the greatest tragedy of the Decemberists was their inability to deal with incarceration, right? And then so that kind of bookends my project. So like that happened, right? There was this inability. But on the other side of this, about a hundred years later, in 1924, Maxim Gorky, the famous novelist, working class novelist, in a short piece on Lenin, has this ironic aside where he's like, oh, it's the 1920s. This point, oh, every Russian who spent like a few weeks in prison can't help but write a memoir now about their experience and how they sacrificed themselves and the politics they gave to the Russian revolutionary struggle. So, somewhere in that hundred years, the prison cell the experience of incarceration changed. It became legible, became narrativizable. It became something that could be comprehended, could be subverted through both practice and narrative. And so understanding subversive practice alongside the narratives that gave this site legibility became the sort of terrain in which was conceivable and how these two things kind of dialectically built upon one another over time in the development of a rich prison culture and a rich prison politics is a main goal of my project. And so in this knocking language, I discuss in detail. We can go into specifics if you'd like. Naki language is not just a technique, but it's a key element in the Russian revolutionary prison memoir that develops in this century and which serves as a vessel for radical self-articulation, self-construction. And narrating one's exposure to mastery of and radical kind of intercommunal solidarities built through Naki language becomes a key site for revolutionaries to later narrate the prison cell as one in which they have taken agential action, have continued their struggle.
1: Mm -hmm. I have two things in response. (laughs) First, your idea that revolutionary radical action does not stop when one becomes incarcerated made me think of another thing, made me think of an exile, which was also meant to Exiling people to Siberia, to these far away, remote places, was meant to exclude people from the, not even the revolutionary struggle, but society at large and doom them to a different life, etc. But ironically, over there, people also continued to grow politically and to be exposed to other communities. And in fact, the founding fathers of Russian anthropology were people who spent Ten plus years in exile in Siberia, people like Bogoras, Sternberg and others. So I very much agree with this idea that you know prison and exile in other places they would think exclude people from conversation from fighting, from struggle, actually could be subversive, could be like revolutionary in themselves. Because like, when else would they be exposed to indigenous people in Siberia and think about decolonization and equality and anti-racism and stuff like that? But then also I had a question because you mentioned that you talked about voice and uh, voicing your political position and prison Knocking is like about continuing the conversation in a situation where you're very limited. But then the other side would be I mean, when we talk about sound, we inevitably also think about silence. And so I wonder if there was any meaning to silence in the case of your protagonists. And what is the kind of relationship between sound and silence when it comes to the prison and prison language?
2: I totally agree with what you're saying about Siberia, too. And in fact, I mean, in my project on the Peter and Paul Fortress in general, Fortress incarceration was often a node from which diverse itineraries out to Siberia would travel, right? And where you have people who face the Tsarist cell and also fight against it, develop politics against it, then being brought to Siberia and doing something very similar in terms of contesting sort of Tsarist, turning exile into an incubator of radical politics and, and radical anthropology and radical new... Yeah, visions of the world. And silence, I mean, there's a horror of silence in all of these narratives, right, that we get from the Peter and Paul Fortress in general, from the memoir literature. I mean, narrated life, the art of the memoir, of the ego documents is itself is something that militates against silence, right? Attempting to give voice, give narrative form, give political weight to one's life story, right? So, of course, there's be an allergy to silence there in many ways, but it comes through in various accounts of this, The Tsarist disciplinary apparatus attempting to enforce complete silence. You were allowed books. Depending on what level of prisoner you were, you might be allowed walks, you might be allowed some visitations, maybe not, but you were supposed to be in silence. And so that subversion of that is really key here, even if you could write coded letters. Because knocking language wasn't the only type of illicit communication in the cells of the SARS regime, right? I've also found all sorts of fascinating codes, scraps of paper torn from the margins of books or cigarettes used to write messages that were smuggled in the prison yard, books from the prison library with certain letters underlined by one's fingernail that when assembled spell a message, and more, right? But there's something about, I think, knocking language and its recovery of voice that it was more immediate in that you you could sort of bridge that spatial gap between one cell and the other even more easily than the winding circuit of a book back to the prison library and back to someone else again. But I think it also spoke to that 19th century sort of sensory politics of sound. I chatted about that a little bit previously. And I think for me too, it also, it, it finds expression in The interlapping between discourses on the political prison and the rise of Gothic romanticism, too, in the 19th century, right? Where the bustle, the the exchange of ideas, the public sphere, letting one's voice be heard, hearing the voice of the people is so often contrasted with a Tsarist empire cast in the narrative mode of the 19th century Gothic novel, right? Of a despotic, silence, closed off, barred, yeah, lugubrious terror that stifles the voice, that cuts out the tongue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a deep horror of silence and
0: a deep valorization of voice in this period. Absolutely. Is this desire of the revolutionary, because I'm still kind of struck with the Decemberists. I mean, sure, the language is developed then, but the Decemberists, not really, the prison actually becomes an effective way of silencing, let's say. And they didn't develop the kind of revolutionary kind of politics out of it. Is this desire to speak on the part of the revolutionary and knocking language being one of these modes of voice, is this also connected to a new notion of democracy as well? Here I'm thinking of like the revolutions of mid 19th century, where you have the voices of the little people in revolution speaking, and here the the need to speak, the voice, as you earlier said, with agency, People's voices are also something we talk a lot about today, too. Hearing the voices of X. Is that desire to speak and to hear in the mid-19th century also connected to this new notion of democracy or political participation?
2: I I would say so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's a fascinating way to approach it. I'm not sure if I've thought this through entirely, especially how it relates to that Decemberist and then post decemberist divide, right? But there is a great literature on political rhetorics of sight as well as sound in the French Revolution, right? And this new sort of sensory histories take that as a sort of dividing line, as an epistemological political watershed, as it was in so many other ways. But the Decemberists were interesting in that they were deeply influenced both conceptually, politically, as well as existentially by modern French history, right? Through their participation in the Napoleonic Wars to the, the challenge that the French Revolution laid down to the social-political structures of Europe in that period. But the Decemberists did not have the same developed, mature vision of the Narod that would populate their political future as it would be developed in the later part of the 19th century, of course, with the Narodniki, with Narodnitristova, right? And this is where we get in that place where my project begins to think through Not only the politics as they were espoused in manifestos and programs or as lived and struggled for in groups and militant actions, but also in the ways in which political cultures find modes of narration that are both the grounds upon which politics is fought, but also the ways in which... That politics is later than conceptualized, the sort of um, the spaces of possibility of a politics, and what we find, and what I argue, and this is a totally different part of my work in the Pierre and Paul Fortress, is that a key development in all of this, in the history of modern radical prison cultures, and I would say probably in this question of the democratic subject, the the people as political subject, and hearing that people is the the rise of the nineteenth century novel in many ways. Part of my project is trying to understand what was the first. Russian memoir of political imprisonment and what it, where did it come from and what could it do? The Decemberists, their prison writings, when they occurred at all, were in lyrical modes, were poetry, right? Um, were highly individualized, were creating arcs back to classical content, to early romantic, weepy visions of subjectivity. But they had not yet developed what I argue to be an incredibly robust, new articulation of personal self-history and world history, of the struggle of the individual and the struggle of a world historical arc that we first really get out of the 19th century novel, which becomes in the basis for the 19th century political memoir in so many ways, right? And I, I dig into it elsewhere, but I see it as a very kind of Hegelian, Goethean thing where suddenly One's life and one's struggle, one's accomplishments and achievements, also one's setbacks can be placed within the larger living arc of a world historical struggle in which even the despair of the prison cell becomes comprehensible and becomes something that can be integrated into a fight against all autocracies. And so part of the novel is that it's essentially democratic. I mean, it's, of course, we can talk about statistics on literacy and the actual social fabrics of Eurasian uh, polities at this time. But when the modern novel arose, its early adherents were so jazzed up, were so excited by the possibility of, look, if, um, we found this new way of articulating the self in the world that, that it's common to everyone, that everyone contains a novel within them, right? That we were all embedded in history in this way. The, there's something egalitarian about the novel as conceived, As both technology of the self as well as a political vehicle in this period, that I think made it more amenable to democratic politics and to certain visions than the old Decemberist lyric.
1: Speaking about fighting autocracies, is uh, prison knocking language particular to Russia, or are there similar examples elsewhere? Because we have a lot of autocracies
2: out there. It's totally true. It's totally true. You hear and little scattered bits and pieces, elements of some sort of acoustic-based, vibration-based code for speaking in prisons or other sites of confinement at various other areas of human history, be they popping up in early cryptographical texts, even in the classical period, the, the kind of gridded code and how to, like that code itself or that way of organizing numbers and symbols and marks has a much earlier history. And it pops up behind everything, as I mentioned before, from the Serbian struggle against the Habsburgs to uh, um, sells well. I guess this is the Tsarist Empire, but um, the, the the Citadel in Warsaw, right? In the at the turn of the twentieth century, Padraig Kenny's book *Dance and Chains* the great section on how Polish radicals learned how this language filtered from the Peter and Paul Fortress out to the borderlands, the oppressive borderlands of the empire. Some of the most interesting examples I've found too that plug into this. I mean, we're still in Eurasia with this, but you'll find knocking language pop up in the Gulag system in the twentieth century. Yevgenia Ginsburg's *Into the Whirlwind* sees her swept up in the Great Terror, and she's in a cell and she hears knocking from across the walls. And she remembers having read Vera Figner's um, memoir of Tsar's political imprisonment and taking that knocking language then from those memories and developing it in the sort of the Soviet carceral system and using it to communicate with her fellow prisoners as she wends her way across Eurasia.
1: Do you think people still use prison knocking in uh, Russia today? Like, do you think Navalny... Dun, 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 dun,
2: dun, dun, dun. That's an excellent question. I I hesitate to even speculate on it, in that I get to I get to do this as a historian, right? I get to say that I I specialize in the 19th century, so I I I get to protect myself a little bit because, it, because that's an excellent question. I wish I had an answer for you. So Judith Pallet has done some excellent work on contemporary Russian Federation prison cultures, right? I should talk with her about this, but I'd be curious. Although part of that question too is going to Merge with or arrive at the larger question of what happened to the political prisoner in the contemporary world, right? We do have figures like Navalny and we do have principled sort of political offenders in the Russian Federation today and other areas of the world. But the heyday of the political prisoner as a global phenomenon, which we can see in the 19th and, and into the 20th century, I would argue it really doesn't have the same purchase, the same sort of shared narrative community, the same kind of weight that it once had the same ability to shake the stones beneath an autocratic regime that's not to say that people aren't politically incarcerated to say in fact i would argue that every prisoner is a politically incarcerated individual depending on what we talk about when we talk about politics right but in my project as a whole something that i found particularly fascinating but also kind of bittersweet or melancholic about exploring the rise of incredibly robust powerful you know shared vision of what it meant to suffer and struggle but also overcome in the cells of the Romanov house is that even in our age where more people on this earth are in cages than at any other point in human history we no longer have that deep kind of shared set of narratives of subversive tools of technologies and with that same shared kind of electric public circulation that it once did.
1: That was Nicholas Budzelski, Nicholas Budzelski is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of History at Oberlin College. His writing has appeared in the Russian Review, Modern Intellectual History, and the Marx and Philosophy Review of Books. And his current book project is a cultural, intellectual, and spatial history of Russia's revolutionary movement through the prison cells of the Peter and Paul Fortress.
0: Thank you very much, Rusana. I'm your host, Sean Guillory.
1: And I'm your fellow co-host, Ruslana Novikova.
0: Listeners should know that this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at PodCuts Editing. If you have any audio work that needs to be done and you want it to sound good and professional, check out Daniel's services. We partner with him because that's exactly what he does for us. And I think it makes the show so much better to listen to. So go to PodCutsEditing.com and ask Daniel about what he can provide you. And he'll also give you your first edit for free. And also, you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners just like you, I can only say quite emphatically, become a patron, let us know how much you appreciate this show by going to patreon.com slash Euronaut, and until next time, I bid you farewell, goodbye. Bye.
2: Читкий а потом её трижим, не убежали.